a Podcast One production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Jess Fox is an athlete I have long admired, ever since she burst into the public eye after winning a silver medal at the London Olympics as a teenager. She pretty much put canoe slalom on the map in Australia and has become a household name all around the country with big name sponsors backing her. Jess is now regarded as the greatest paddler in her sports history after claiming her eighth world title. And she did this all before she was 26 years old. But is the Jess out of the rapids? That's always intrigued me. She's strong, coming from a family of strong women, including her mother, who's her coach and a former Olympian. And Jess isn't afraid to challenge the status quo, even when facing a barrage of criticism from within her sport. Yet Jess's story doesn't start in Australia. Instead, in the beautiful and picturesque south of France. So my mum is French and my dad's English and they were living in France at the time. So I was born in Marseille in the south and mum actually was training for the Olympic Games for 96. So my earliest memories are of just kind of being on the riverbank following her, you know, playing with rocks or whatever was was there, (laughs) sitting in the pram. And I have this memory of like the smell of the club and of, you know, at the time they were repairing or building kayaks with fiberglass and carbon and resin. And like, I just remember that smell. Every time I smell it, it brings me back to that time. So yeah, those are probably my earlier memories. Um, But we moved to Australia when I was four. So Mm -hmm. uh, dad got a job for the Sydney Olympic Games coaching the Australian team. And we were just meant to be here a couple of years um, <laughs> from 99 to 2000. And, you know, 20 years later, we're still here. So I think, yeah, my parents really loved the the way of life in Australia. And we started school and, yeah, we just ended up staying. Do you still speak French? Yes. Yes. I speak French with mom, with my family in France. It's I'm so glad that um, I learned it. Well, actually, it was my first language. Dad used to speak to me in English and I'd never reply in English. It was always in French. And yeah, then cool. when we came to Australia, they just sort of were wondering whether or not I'd <laughs> speak any English. Um, and yeah, I got to school and just blah, 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 it came out in English. So Wow, cool. Um, yeah, I was very lucky to be able to grow up with both languages. I'm so fascinated by bilingual kids and how they can pick it up and they'd be able to switch between both so easily and sometimes get muddled up. Do you yeah. do you sometimes get a bit muddled up and you get angry or something and a French word comes yeah, out? Yeah, I find that when I'm tired, um, I'll switch. So I might be starting the sentence in French and I'll finish in English because I can't be bothered finding the word I'm looking for. Or sometimes it's the other way. You know, in, in French, they actually have some words um, to describe a certain concept that, you know, we might mm. need five words to describe. So I'll just throw that one in <laughs> in the middle of a sentence. But it kind of goes in my family. So um, everyone understands. And what kind of little kid were you? Were you energetic? Were you, I can't imagine you being quiet at all. Uh, I think I was shy. I think right. I was a shy kid. Yeah, but I loved sport. I was always really sporty and competitive and energetic in that sense, mm. but never overly loud and funny. And that was my sister. My sister was hilarious and <laughs> always, you know, dancing and um, coming up with funny games or concerts. But I was, yeah, a bit more shy, I think. But sport, you know, swimming or gymnastics or little A's, netball, um, I, yeah, tried everything as a kid. Let's talk about kayaking because you were born into what they call as 
kayaking royalty, (laughs) both your parents being Olympians in the sport. Um, Is that how they... Is that how they met? Um, And how soon before you had a paddle in your hand? Yeah, they met paddling um, on the World Cup circuit or the World Championship circuit. And I was born in 94 and I was in a kayak at about six months of age, I think, (laughs) for a newspaper article or something. I've got the photo (laughs) there. Um, But my grandpa, who was the president of the club in Marseille, he always used to brag that, you know, the as soon as I was old enough, so like six months of age, I had a, a club license. So I'm the <laughs> oldest member of a club of my age. Like I have the longest membership, I right. guess. <laughs> Very cool. But I was probably, I mean, the kayaks, I, I don't remember a time when we didn't have a kayak mm. at home or whenever we'd go on holidays, the kayaks would come with us. So even as a, you know, six, seven year old, we'd jump in a kayak and have a little splash about, but I didn't really love it. I didn't enjoy mm. it that much. Um, the flat water was a bit boring and I, I kind of always say that I must have shied away from it because it was lame to do what your parents did. And when you're that young, you can't really go on the whitewater rapids until you've developed oh. the technique <laughs> and the right skills. So it wasn't until I was 11 that I really ended up paddling more regularly. And that was after breaking my arm. My physio, who's still my physio today, wow. he... Um, he suggested I do a bit more kayaking to strengthen it up as rehab. And yeah, I was old enough to get on the rapids at that stage. So the rest is history. So was it the rapids that somewhat sold it to you as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, growing up in Penrith, we have the Whitewater Stadium that was built for the Olympic Games mm. for Sydney. So that was my backyard. And every weekend I'd be out there while mum and dad would be coaching. And I was always drawn to that part. It was exciting, kind of scary and definitely Mm. really challenging. And that's that adrenaline rush that Mm. I loved and being able to sort of, you know, as an 11, 12 year old conquer that, you know, first drop of the course or do my first live roll where, you know, you capsize and you come back up and, and then, you know, eventually making it down the whole course without capsizing. Those little moments I remember were the big sort of milestone achievements Mm. that kept me coming back and seeing if I could improve. When you did start competing, given your parents' history, um, did that make you confident that you could dominate or did it make you nervous because there was a somewhat expectation for you to be able to perform in this sport? Definitely nervous. I think I was very nervous to be on the start line with the fox name hanging Mm. over my head and, and just sort of that expectation of, oh, or just the curiosity of people wondering if I'd be any good, if I'd be like Mm. my parents. And I remember always being super competitive and loving competitions. So I always wanted to show my best. And Mm. I think those first few competitions that went well kind of gave me a good little boost, even if they were, you know, under 12s, nationals or something. And when I was 14, 15, I got the opportunity to do the demo runs for the Australian Open, which is an international event. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the nerves of having the whole international contingent who was there ready to race watching me Mm. and just being like, this is my moment to show that I can, you know, (laughs) get these gates and do it, do it well. And, and that kind of performative showing off and Mm. proving myself was already there at like 14 years of age. So when I got to the junior worlds and in my first senior worlds, I really sort of wanted to establish myself as my own 
person and, mm. you know, with my own technique or the fact that I do two events, the kayak and the canoe, mm. sort of separated me from my parents. But, um, yeah, winning those junior world championships um, in 2010 kind of, for me, it was like, okay, my parents never won the junior world, so <laughs> I can tick a box there, you know. <laughs> and done that. I like yeah. how you talk about it, like performing on a stage. And that's what it is, isn't it? Bringing your best at that time to be able to get the best result is like a performance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I, I think I've always been a good performer in that I realise, okay, this is where I have to put in all that work that I've done, mm. all the practice and, and deliver it to the best of my ability and just try and do my best in this moment. So whether it was, you know, a swimming carnival, um, you know, I'd always line up wanting to just win even though I was training two to three times a week and the girl next to me eight times a week. So mm. it was like I didn't care. I just had to do the best I could and give it my best. Or if it was, you know, a, a school talent show or something or the HSC, you know, just sitting there in a performance state. I think mm. all those sort of moments throughout school or um, different sports kind of helped me get to a competitive mindset um, mm. when I was old enough to race, yeah. Um, you alluded to it before, but for those of you who aren't familiar with your sport, how canoe slalom, the sport works? So it's a race against the clock down Whitewater Rapids and there's usually 18 to 25 gates. It, it changes depending on the course, depending on the venue, and every race is different. So I think that's one of the things I love is the variety. Um, so usually you're either in a kayak, so you're in a seated position with a double-bladed paddle, or you're in a canoe in a kneeling position with a single-bladed paddle. And there are six upstream gates where those are the red ones. So you go back upstream, they're usually in a still water part of the course called an eddy to get technical. <laughs> um, and then the rest are downstream gates and you've got to use the water. So there's stoppers and waves and different moves that might happen, but we don't actually get to practice on the gates before the race. So we watch the demo runners who give us an idea of how to do the moves. We analyze the video, we walk it through with the coach on the bank, and then we visualize. So usually you're sitting on the start line, you might have never done the course, but you've probably done those sort of moves before. So you've got to trust your skills in that. And so usually the course is a 300 meter course and it takes about 90 to 100 seconds. So because each course is different, there's no world records or PBs, but that time will also depend on whether or not you have any penalties. So if you hit a gate, that's a two second penalty. And if you miss a gate, that's a 50 second penalty that gets added to your time. They've all got lots of flags, don't they? Like in when you're practicing or when the normal fields. Oh, like, do you, you mean gates? Gates, sorry. Gates. Yeah, yeah. I always imagine them as <laughs> as colours for some reason. Yeah, they're green or, or red. Yeah. Yep, yep. And do they have like loads of them but you pick certain ones when you, when you yeah. train in training for that? Yeah, so we usually train on artificial courses and race on artificial courses these days. But sometimes we get to go on natural rivers and that's, you know, the history of our sport was on natural um, but at training, yeah, there'll be, you know, sometimes hundreds of gates on a course and you sort of pick which ones you're going to do and, you know, you narrow it down to a few each section to be able to work on specific things, work on different technical moves. But it does look really confusing to, mm. you know, the outside eye, you sort of look in and you're like, wow, there's so many gates. How do you know which one to take? And yeah. it is funny when we go to a new place, sometimes it's really hard to remember the course because... You, there's so many gates and you're, you're trying to remember 
um, you know, which gate is where, what the feature mm. is at that point. At home, I know every mm. every move, every part of the course, but overseas at different venues, sometimes it takes a couple of days to adapt to that. And you're not allowed to go on it until, did you say, until actual race so day or? We're allowed to train on the yeah. on the venue and we try all different gate combinations but the race course that is set, so the the set gates, the 18 to 25 gates that they set, we don't actually know what that's going to be until the day before the race. That's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky, but I guess it's what makes it exciting as yeah, well. Like you've yeah. got to know that you've got the skills, you've got the the tools to be able to do any course. And sometimes it's really challenging and there's different options that you can take to get the gates. And you know, that's where we analyse and we watch different paddlers and we take split times to to know, you know, what the fastest option is or mm. what the safest option is. You know, some of them are riskier than others and you might just wait to take that option in the final to gain a bit more time. Um, so it is a bit tactical as well. There's a lot of things that come into play, but the biggest thing is to be able to trust yourself that you've got the skills you haven't practiced the course, but you can definitely do it. But in terms of visualization and, you know, I know race car drivers go over mm. like their track in their head over and yeah. over and over again, and they do it on simulators and everything. They visualize it for you. You, you, you well, you've got a day to do that. Yeah, pretty much. And it is one of the things I'm so envious of other athletes. Um, you know, for example, in diving, you can visualize your dive for a year before you do it. Mm. <laughs> Whereas for us, it's, it's just on the day. And, um, it's the same for some sports maybe who, you know, in skiing, I think it's probably similar, but yeah, I guess that that's what I love about it as well is the variety and that someone might be good at on, on one day and then it might be someone, someone else on another day. Um, but the visualization is really important to be able to see yourself doing the course, to be able to give your mind that, um, belief that, you know, to send the right messages to your body, to mm. be able to get the boat and your paddle to do the right thing. And um, yeah, it, it is quite interesting when I, it's not something I think about, but when I'm talking about it, I'm like, it's so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing it for so long yeah. as well. Yeah, it does become natural. Um, I think you do learn to react in the moment a lot as well. And mm. that's, you've got to be adaptable in, in canoe slalom. Which is your favourite, canoe or or kayak, because obviously kayak was the one that you started with? Yes. So I started in kayak um, and canoe I started in 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. And it's it wasn't an Olympic event and it wasn't even a world champion event back then, but it was coming into the world championships mm -hmm. program with the hope of getting into the Olympics in Rio or Tokyo. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah, definitely a big fight to get that event in and, and to get the, the gender equity in our sport has been a big fight and a big challenge. Mm. And Explain that to me. Yeah, so I guess in the past um, there's only been one woman, well, one event for the women and three events for the men mm. and that's just how it always was. And I remember speaking to someone and sort of asking the question and, and finding out somewhere along the line that it, somebody had said, oh, in, in the canoe, in the kneeling position, um, that can negatively affect a woman's reproductive system. <laughs> so just these random, like, okay, so. How old were you when you, do you remember being told that, how, how old uh, you were? I don't know. I found this out like a couple of years ago that that had been, <sighs> you know, sort of the mindset that the women just couldn't do the canoe event because they're not sure. strong enough or built for it or mm. whatever it might be. Um, so eventually you know, there was this shift towards, well, we need more women's events and we need gender equity in our sport 
also who want to stay at the Olympics. You know, that's mm. that was part of the Agenda 2020 by the IOC. And mm -hmm. um, Australia were, our federation were really great in supporting the girls to get into canoes, to provide coaching, to take us to competitions, whereas a lot of other countries just stuck their head in the sand or, mm. you know, just didn't even give the women the support or the resources they needed to to progress, to be able to race at these events mm. because they weren't good enough. But it's a bit of a catch-22 because to get the experience and to build your standard and your level, you need the resources, you need the coaching, the mm. support, the belief that you deserve to be there. Mm. And for a lot of girls that was missing. So it was really hard those first few years paddling on tour and, and racing in events where the men would sort of say, oh, they're useless. Um, mm. you know, this women's C1 event is a joke. They don't deserve to be here. I have a specific technique where I switch sides when I paddle. And mm -hmm. traditionally the canoe event, you stick to one side. So in the kayak, you're paddling on both sides. Mm. So that's my background and what works for me. So I tried to adapt that to the C1. Mm -hmm. But I remember people saying that's cheating. That's not the traditional way of doing it. So there was all these, you know. Did you feel that was somewhat kind of tied up with the equity debate as well in that? Uh, Do you I, think it would have been the same reaction if a male had been paddling that way and decided to paddle it a different way? It would have had that same kind of backlash? Well, that's the thing. The men today are watching us and copying us. So there's more <laughs> men today who are switching and that just makes me so happy because 10 years ago, none of them were or the mm. occasional, there'd be the occasional switch and it'd be a momentous event of like, whoa, did you see what he did? You know, that's crazy. Um, whereas today, more men are watching the women and thinking, actually, that's smart. Mm. You know, maybe they're not as strong as us, but technically they're pulling off really good moves. They're getting the gates really smoothly, really well. And um, yeah, that's one of my proudest moments is being mm. able to see or, or, or hearing from other paddlers who, you know, come up to us and say, you know, that that was a great section that you just did or a mm. great race that you just did. And I watched you before I raced and I tried to watch how you did it because I thought that was really fast. You know, right. things yeah. where you realise the mentality is completely shifting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 10 years ago, that was quite unlikely to hear. Was it hard for you at the time? Because you would have been quite young um, and starting off in, in, in this sport and with a different style to receive that kind of criticism constantly? Yes, but at the same time, mum, who's my coach, we were on the same page. You know, I wasn't strong enough to do the traditional, you know, men's mm. technique of the cross bow, which is where you bring the stroke across your body as opposed mm. to switching hands. And I was also winning races doing that and mm. faster in certain sections Within than other girls. So, and within the rules, obviously. So for me, it just made sense and I didn't understand why I would, you know, not switch when it was clearly mm. working for me. Um, which brings me to my next point because when you were, I think about 18 or 19, I just started Sportette and I was working at Channel 9 at the time and my boss um, in sport, Andrew Slack, um, Wallaby's great, legend of a human being, such a great guy. Um, he said to me, you've got to look at this. I know you're into women's sport, but just listen to this young girl. Like she's been quoted in the paper talking about women's sports, talking about equality. And he was talking about you. He goes, she's so young, but like, listen to what she just said. She seems to be your type of girl, Sam. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I guess from what you've just said, that kind of field, is there somewhat of a bit of a feminist streak in you? Um, 
where you you push for equality and where did that come from and has that always been been in you yeah definitely i i feel super lucky that i've had strong role models and strong female role models you know my mum the first mm. to be you know honest speak her mind go for what she wants um she was one of the pioneers in in our sport and she was prob- she was actually one of the first women to you know have a baby and come back to a really high level and win an olympic medal in our sport so she sort of paving the way for other mm. women to see that that was possible as well. Probably and not just in your sport, in sport in general. In sport in general, mm. yeah. In the 90s, it wasn't that common. So she, um, and she's one of few female coaches internationally as well, but she's always, I guess, willing to support and mentor other women coaches in our sport, but other mm. sports. And also my grandma, who she's she's 85 now, but she was, um, you know, a single mum working as a nurse, really trying to have a career as well as be a mum. And she worked until she was 75 because she loved it. And just, I think that drive to have a career and Mm. also to to work at a time where, you know, she was in a religious household where the women were probably more expected to just raise the family, but she was so driven to, to do, you know, have a career. So she studied really hard and even now, you know, she she was learning Hebrew at 80, 82 because why not? So I think just it was never, for me, it was never um, an option to think that because of my gender I couldn't do something. Mm. And I was brought up in a way that, you know, if I worked hard enough I could get there. So I definitely feel frustrated when other women are blocked by Mm. their gender in, in sport or whatever field it is. And, yeah, I definitely have that that streak and, and that fight for equality and gender equity in sport for sure. You at that time were also studying your HSC at the time. How did you juggle, and you, you, you finished with an ATAR of, of 99, which is, um, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's up there with my Olympic medals as like my best achievement it's 10 fantastic. years on. <laughs> it's okay. Still write it. Absolutely. Um, did school always come easy to you? And was it hard to be able to juggle, you know, your your um, your Olympic prospects and your training with studying and getting such a great result? Yeah, I was always, I loved school. I really enjoyed school and also my parents were quite firm on that, you know, I had to apply myself and do my best at school and, um, you know, try and get good marks. Even if I wanted to be an athlete, you know, towards the end of high school, it was always school comes first and, you know, you're not going to be a professional basketball player. So you need to get a, a good de- a good degree later on or, you know, at least a good mark in the HSC. Um, and so I really did work hard for that. But I think it also came down to um, knowing how to manage my time, knowing what worked for me. And I wasn't one to do all-nighters, like I need sleep or I don't mm. function. So I would get up at 4am and finish an assignment before school or, um, you know, I'd, I'd come home from training and I'd actually be feeling way more fresh to get into some study, whereas friends of mine might have just been sitting on Facebook for two hours and, <laughs> you know, hadn't even started studying. So I didn't feel like I lost too much time in terms of having to, you know, quit sport during mm. that final year. For me, it was really important to stay active and, and training mm. kind of was on the back foot, but it was still very much part of my day-to-day. And and I think I always encourage students to do that because, I mean, you know, it, it sport's so mm. good for us to be, being active is so good to clear your head, to, you know, stay fit and healthy and 
And for me, it was, yeah, the, the thing that got me through the HSC, but also I had some great teachers who understood, um, yeah, I would miss three weeks of school, but I was also really diligent in wanting to do the assignments, get the mm. schoolwork done. And that meant, you know, not going to all the parties or when I was overseas, not going sightseeing like my teammates mm. and, you know, finishing off an assignment. So there were definitely choices and a few little sacrifices, but um, school was important to me as well. Yeah. And I was even, I was competitive at school too. <laughs> like I'd, I'd get a mark back and be like, oh, why did I only get this mark? Like, what do I need to do to improve? So, and I'd always, m- one of my best friends, we were so competitive with each other that it would be like, okay, what did, what did you get? What did I get? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in all aspects of your life, that yeah, competitive streak just, was just there. It's just an innate trait. <laughs> Saying that, um, you look back and you've had, like you're only 26, but you've, you've had an incredible career so far. Were you always confident when you were young getting into this sport that you could build a career from it, given that it didn't have, especially back then, the profile and maybe the sponsorships weren't as lucrative as as other sports? I, I, I mean, I was always keen on sport and it would, I wanted to go to the Olympics and I didn't know what sport it would be when I was young. But when I found paddling and found that I was pretty good at it, that I loved it and enjoyed training, I was quite set on it. And I, I guess having had success early, um, you know, going to the Olympics at 18 and winning Mm. a silver medal, it really kind of set me on a, on a certain trajectory that Mm. I might not have had, you know, I was looking to study possibly medicine out of school, but then winning an Olympic silver medal and being able to, you know, get some sponsors and Mm. um, realising, hey, maybe I could do this full time or maybe I could, you know, build a career Mm. out of this. I think it really set me on a different path. So I never would have imagined that I'd have the career that I've had so far. And I think being able to enjoy it every day has been the biggest thing for me and the longevity I think I've been fortunate to not have you know major injuries Mm. and very fortunate to have some great sponsors that have supported me over the years so um, the sport has has changed and I think the the profile has grown a bit as well and Mm. I love the fact that people don't call it rowing as well like that's a big win in my books they don't confuse it with rowing rowing? yeah like or whitewater rafting or (laughs) like yeah Yeah, rowing's the main one they're like oh how's your rowing going oh no but um, yeah, and and the rowers off sometimes get you know how's your kayaking? It's yeah, right. Okay, water sport. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I definitely feel very very lucky. I've worked hard to get here, but it's um, a, a few things aligned for me, I think, to get to where I have been able to get. Well, let's talk about going to the Olympics as a teenager, and that was in London in 2012. Um, silver, incredible result for an 18 year old. Um, mm. We've had guests on the show talk about their first Olympics feeling overawed or just, um, you know, like it struck them as the the intensity and yeah. the greatness of it all really struck them and surprised them, shocked them, I should say. Um, but for you as an 18-year-old to get silver, like obviously am I right in saying that that wasn't the case and that you felt prepared or how did you feel? Tell me. I was... Uh, very lucky to have had the Youth Olympic Games experience two years before in mm-hmm. 2010. It was the inaugural YOG, as it's known, and it was in Singapore. And that was the first, I guess, multi-sport event for young people. I think it's under the age of 18. So I was 16 at the time. And that gave me an incredible experience, not just the competition, mm-hmm. but it was more the village life, 
the media, the being part of a bigger team than just a small canoe slalom team, um, you know, wearing an Australian uniform and the opening and closing ceremonies. So having had that experience in 2010, I felt like when I got to London, I'd kind of been prepared by that Mm. because I wasn't as overwhelmed by the village or the food hall or I wasn't as distracted (laughs) by those things. Um, And we're lucky we we arrive in the village a little bit before our competition. So you kind of take those two, two, three days before your events to get used to it all and, and, you know, soak it all in. But um, yeah, I, I guess I was just there to to have a great experience. I was just wanting to do my best and had nothing to lose. That was probably the the best thing was I was just naive and, and innocent <laughs> and just ready to to do the best I could in in front of um, fifteen thousand people and all the people watching back home. But I remember sitting on that start line of the final and being so calm and mm. like I'm so impressed with myself to have <laughs> just been so like nervous, but just like wow, Mm. how cool is it that I'm here and I'm in an Olympic final. There's women, you know, who have won world championships, Olympic medals and World Cup events who are 10 years older than me. Mm. But (laughs) I'm here. Like, that's amazing. So let's enjoy this. (laughs) So, yeah, to win a silver was amazing. You, speaking of that, of the women that you competed against, you also competed against and beat a a lady from the Czech Republic who actually competed against your mom. Yeah, Stepanka (laughs) Hilgatova. So she an amazing athlete. She was double Olympic champion in 96 and 2000. And she competed until she was, I think, 45, 46, she retired. Um, Yeah, she was 44 in London and she came fourth. So yeah, still incredible. And that was probably one of the, the stories that the media loved the most was that I was getting the revenge for my mom or something along those lines. (laughs) But um, it never felt that way. I think, you know, our sport's wonderful in that everyone gets along really well mm. and, and um, there's a great vibe and you're there on the start line ready to put your best race out, not necessarily to beat that person. Mm. How then were you different in Rio in 2016 to London 2012 in terms of your mindset and your physical preparation? Rio was different because obviously four years on, you're a more mature athlete. Um, I had a lot more expectations for myself. I was fitter, stronger. I'd been a double world champion in between those two games as well. So I felt really ready and I was one of the favourites, I think, for Rio. Um, And I mean, London was perfect and Rio was just chaotic in every sense. Um, But the lead up, you know, there were a lot of things that kind of went (laughs) wrong along the way and you just had to take it as it came and just go with the flow and adapt to the situation. Like I was constantly adapting in Rio. i had training camps where my, my equipment didn't arrive and I had to borrow someone else's for a few days. Mm. Or I had, I remember I laid down in the grass at one camp and I got bitten by three little electric ants. Like we have bull ants in Australia and things that kill you. And so when I saw these little things, I was like, oh yeah, whatever. Mm. And I got the most severe allergic reaction, (laughs) just (laughs) welts everywhere, swollen face. And I guess, you know, little things. electric ants. Yeah, just three. Yeah. That's all it took. Just three. Just three. Wow. <laughs> but I knew, okay, I won't be lying in the grass between my races. I will not be touching the grass in Rio. So I guess little things like that kind of added up. But it was just those sort of little curveballs that you had to adapt to and mm. just go, okay, this isn't going as I planned. What can I do instead? You know, what can I control in this situation and what can I learn from here? And anytime I guess I have a bad 
a bad day or a situation that's really testing me, I'm like, this is good for me. Mm. And I'm going to figure out how it's good for me eventually, but it, it is good sure. for me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Rio um, was a tumultuous journey, but getting there and being able to win a second Olympic medal, even though it wasn't the gold medal I was dreaming mm-hmm. of, was still an amazing achievement. Well, let's go to the final. Fast forward after that chaotic build up, <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you crossed the line and with an incredible time in first place, take me back to that feeling of when you first crossed the line, you saw your time. What were you feeling and then what happened? I was really nervous for the final in Rio because it was quite windy and when it's windy, the gates move a little bit and I had to sort of adjust my race plan to adapt to that Mm. and, um, you know, that whole run was a little bit... I was a bit cautious because I was making sure I was in the right position, didn't want to get any penalties. And so when I crossed the line and went into first place, I was just so relieved and happy because I knew it wasn't perfect Mm. and it was, you know, not my best free paddling like I was hoping to do, but it was Mm. still good enough to go in the lead. And I guess it kept that dream alive for a little bit. And then I had an asterisk. So when there's an asterisk next to your name, it means that they're reviewing a gate and it was one of the last gates. I don't remember what number it was, but I basically came in really tight and slid out and my back hit the gate mm-hmm. and they were reviewing whether or not there was a penalty. And it took a few minutes for it to come on. And, you know, in that time, your stomach just drops. Mm. I, w- I wasn't sure if it was going to be a touch or a 50 second penalty. And in the end, it was a touch. And so I, I felt mixed emotions of like relief that it wasn't yeah. a 50 second penalty and I was out of the game, but also disappointment that I was bumped from mm. first place to, I think I then went into second place and then Maya Lenchuro went into the lead. So I ended up with the bronze, but I, I guess it was, uh, I, I had the touch for sure when I watched the video, it was there. It did, yeah. Um, but it, it it made it easier to digest because even without the touch, I wouldn't have won. I would have been second. So Sure. If that touch had taken me from first to third, I would have been a lot more upset, I think. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah look, it, it was it was disappointing and I, I've been in so many situations in races where I cross the, cross the line and I've won the race and then 10 minutes later I've been given a 50-second penalty from the video judges and it's just the mo- gut, most gut-wrenching situation to be in. So in the end that was a, a, a great end to a... <laughs> A, a bad, you know, a bad situation. Best of the worst. Yeah, the best of the worst. Yeah. yeah, in that situation. What was it like then having to sit through the next paddlers doing their runs and having to watch that thinking, okay, are they going to beat my time? Yeah. They, where am I going to finish in this? That must be. It was so hard. <laughs> and, you know, I'd been in that situation in London, but the, it, it was different because I was just so proud of my race in mm. London that I didn't care where I ended up. And in Rio, I was just sitting there going, oh, please let this be enough, please let this be enough. Mm. But at the same time, knowing that if it wasn't enough, that's normal too because mm. it wasn't my best day and someone's better, that's normal. So, um, yeah, it was so long to just wait and watch mm. the paddlers go down. But it was a really challenging final for everyone. And um, in the end, Mayalen Churro from Spain um, put down an, an awesome run and she she ended up, I think, two seconds in front of us. Um, so she had a great race. Mm-hmm. 
And I was so pleased for her. Um, You know, if it wasn't me who won, I wanted it to be her because she's a good friend of mine and we shared so many amazing moments in Mm. the lead up to that race where we got to train together and we're kind of like sparring partners, artificial sparring partners (laughs) on those training camps. And that that shared learning um, is really special and that respect that we have for each other is special. So she was bronze medalist in London and I was silver medalist. And then we got to, you know, share the podium again in in Rio. So that was a very cool moment as well. You talk about that mindset of going, but if that wasn't a result, if I did get bumped, then that was fine because I didn't have my best run. Is that an immediate reaction from you or is that your reaction in hindsight? Yeah, that's four years on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, um, look, I... I left Rio frustrated that I didn't have my best race when I was so fit, so technically feeling so good, so ready for that race. And just the fact that it was windy, I felt a little bit um, off balance because mm. of it. Um, so it up until then, you'd had a really good run as well, a bit of a fairy tale run. Yeah, it was It was time. good. It was good. And I lost a little bit of time on the bottom. And so, you know, over the last four years, that's something I've had to work on is training in those conditions building the run and finishing strong. And I think Rio was just one of those races where I I had a great run, but I just wasn't taking the risks that I needed to take mm. to get that gold medal, if that makes sense. You know, my it was sort of like, okay, I could sit here and give it everything and take those risks, but there's a big risk associated with getting the gold or a 50-second penalty mm. um, or I can just try and race it a bit more cautiously and we'll see how we end up. So that was kind of the, the tactic that I took, whereas my mindset has shifted now to be able to give it everything no matter the conditions. So I think there were some women that day who did who raced exceptionally well. You know, Luca Jones from New Zealand had an amazing run and it was it was really special to see her win the silver medal and, and um breakthrough like that. Mm. I think that was a special moment. And obviously Malin that I talked about. So I'm able to accept the fact that there were women who raced better and put down those runs in in an amazing way. And I think that's important to realize when you're an athlete that, um, you know, your best run might not win on the day, but you've just got to be able to do your best run on the day. That mm. That's what matters. So mm. in, you know, heading into Tokyo and at all the races in the lead up, it's just been about trying to do your best run that you can on the day. Mm. You did it light a fire in your belly a little bit post them because you had some really big years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, um, I I was really fired up after Rio and I think I was also just conscious of the fact that I still had so much to learn and I had so much room to improve on and and I was so hungry to to keep improving and keep training hard so yeah 2017 was an amazing year to to win the world title in the kayak mm-hmm. um I was really disappointed in the canoe event where I placed 6th at that world championship um it was the f- the first year that it was then an Olympic event because Mm. it had been announced that it would be in Tokyo. So that first 2017 World Mm. Championship was that first year the women's canoe was, you know, recognised as an Olympic event. And I was going for my third world title and I, yeah, had a really disappointing race. And I remember crying at the finish line and getting out of, well, no, being composed at the finish line, Mm -hmm. but getting out of my boat and seeing all these kids wanting autographs and telling me that, 
you know, they still loved me and like that just broke me. <laughs> there and, and then? There and then, like yeah. it was so hard. Um, and I told them like, okay, you know. Why was that? Why did it break you the so emo- much? I think the emotion that, you know, it was just a bad race. It was a bad day. I was mm. so disappointed, but these kids still wanted the autographs and were still really happy to see me at the finish and they were disappointed for me. Yeah. But I sort of said to them at one point, because I couldn't get through everyone, I said, come back tomorrow. Hopefully I'll have a smile on my face <laughs> and hopefully it'll be a better result. Um, so I guess, yeah, that sort of fired me up a bit to come back the next day and learn how to regulate my emotions to be better the next day. Mm. And winning the world title the next day was probably, yeah, one of the, the proudest moments until 2018 yeah. where I kind of, <laughs> you know, went a little bit better than that. So it was, yeah, a very special couple of years. Let's talk about 2018. Um, and we talked earlier on about your parents being royalty in the sport. And then in a space of a weekend, you broke their records. Your dad had five world titles. Your mum, six. Is that right? Yeah. So dad had five individual titles Mm -hmm. and 10 as a team event. Mm -hmm. And mum had two individual and seven team event or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. But they, yeah, they were pretty good. (laughs) Very good athletes. In the space of a weekend, you broke. broke Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a record that I could break that year. And I had had, yeah, an amazing World Cup season in the lead up to the World Champs, which were back in Rio. Mm. (laughs) And I think just being back in Rio was my sort of, okay, I want my revenge here. I want my best racing here. And yeah, I think it was between my semi and my final, maybe that the media guy, Ross from the ICF, (laughs) he said, you know that if you win today, you, um, you break your mum's record or your dad, I don't remember who it was first. Um, and if you win tomorrow, you become the greatest paddler of all time. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Thanks for that. Like, I'm just going to park that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Could yeah. you park that at that point? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I could. I mean, I, I, I won the world title in the kayak mm-hmm. and I remember sitting on the start line in the canoe and thinking like, wow, how cool would it be if you won today? Okay, stop thinking that. Just like, just focus (laughs) on what you've got to do. Just get the gates. But yeah, it did sort of give me a little boost winning the first one in the kayak event. And just that was a really special moment. Um, And then the next day being able to come back and win the second one, because it's it's something that's really hard to do once you've, um, how do you say, when when you've had a great performance to to back it up the next day with another great mm. performance when you've already kind of achieved a goal is mm. is really hard to be able to just switch off. And I felt like I couldn't celebrate that world title. Mm. I sort of was like, okay, yep, tick the box. That was a good day. <gasps> I've still got a job to do tomorrow. Yeah. So really controlling those emotions mm. and the stress and being able to switch off was, was something that I've learned over the years, but something that I really applied um, at that world championships. Did it give you any extra kudos at home? Were you allowed to? Like, <laughs> <laughs> do you get control at the dinner table or something like? Oh, no, I think it, and it's something I never would have achieved without them. So it's really a big family win. Even if I've yeah. broken their record, it stays in the family <laughs> and it stays really special to our family because, um, you know, dad's 
dad was the one who sort of taught me and, and, and trained me on the flat water all those sessions before school and we still trained together on the flat water on those hard sessions um, and mum's my coach on mm. on day to day. So being able to share that with them and my sister as well, who's yeah, also complete. my teammate as well as my sister. So it was an amazing year for us in yeah. 2018. It was really special to share that with them. And talking about, you know, wanting to get better and making improvements all the time and not resting on your laurels, as you just explained then. I understand you've been working with Nam Baldwin um, on breathing techniques and 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 trying to get more of those one percenters. Um, and Nam Baldwin, for anyone who doesn't know, he's well, how would you describe him? He's he's worked with some of the the greatest athletes Australia has ever produced and teams as well, and has exceptional results. Yeah, yeah. Nam's um, been amazing to work with, and I actually met Nam through Red Bull, and mm-hmm. he's worked with many Red Bull athletes, including Chumpy um, Pullen and um, some surfers as well. Mm-hmm. He's worked with a lot of um, different athletes from different sports. So. I really clicked with Nam because it was kind of different and mm. it was, yeah, like you say, a one percenter to add to my training, to learn how to breathe under pressure, to learn how to focus my energy towards something and, and to be able to stay calm when I'm frazzled. And, mm. you know, he uses different techniques like throwing tennis balls at you while you're under pressure of um, fatigue and things like that. So I kind of enjoyed those sessions because they were fun and, and different and mm. taught me something else. And I'm always looking for ways to, yeah, think outside the box mm. and find different things. And we've breath has come up a lot um, in psychology and with my physio and um, in strength and conditioning. So I think it, it's it's something that I come back to for racing, mm. for um, recovery. And I really think that a lot of I guess a lot of traditional training doesn't focus on it enough. So I've, I've really mm. enjoyed learning about it a bit more the last couple of years. Um, I understand you, and I'm interested in this, that you recently had nose surgery yep. for performance. Yeah. So my physio from a couple of years ago, Ema, um, she's worked with us. She's actually Irish and she ta- told us about a guy called Patrick McEwen, who's also a breath expert. And mm. I went to one of his courses and um, we 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 were doing this exercise and I realized that I couldn't do it very well. I couldn't Mm. breathe through my nose very well. And I, you know, I was what, 23 or 24 by that stage. And I'm like, I've gone 24 years without having much of an issue, Mm. but what if this is something that could help me? Mm. And I realized that my septum was extremely deviated and that like, I think it was my left nostril. I could barely breathe out of my left nostril. So there's a certain breathing technique that's alternate nostril breathing. So you close one nostril, you breathe through that other one, you close that one, you breathe out through the other one. And I couldn't do that. So I realized maybe that's something to explore. And I ended up having septum realignment surgery. So that really helped, especially with sleep. And I realized that I wasn't getting sick as often. Things like, you know, going to the physio, I used to just end up clogged and blocked nose for the rest of the day. And now I don't get that anymore. Wow. So even though they're not directly, it's not something that's directly impacted my performance over the years, it's probably one of those one percenters that yeah. that affects me in my health, in my day-to-day and that'll continue affecting me. So makes sense in your sport where, you know, it's so high adrenaline, like breathing would be so important when things are being thrown mm. at you, it's high adrenaline, it's happening so fast and you've got to yeah. think so quickly, like breath. Yeah 
But I think with the water, I've always been breathing through my mouth because right. of the water splashing and everything. So I never really realised in a race, but it's more outside of the water that it's been um, impacting me, like in my sure, sleep yeah, and, right. you know, having sleep apnea or, or waking up in the night or snoring or grinding my teeth. All those things are kind of related. And yeah. I even realised that the teeth grinding that I had because of tension, which is linked maybe to my breath at night, was making my back spasm. So like everything is linked in the body and it's just amazing how it all works together and, you know, one one small thing can affect something else in a in a big way. So yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, that's that's um how I ended up um wearing a mask for training at one point because I just had the surgery and I couldn't paddle for six weeks. Yeah. You know, couldn't get my nose wet. So I wore one of those scuba masks for a while (laughs) and looked pretty funny. But yeah, it was definitely worth it. Let's talk about the year that's been 2020 and the COVID year. Obviously, you were building towards Tokyo. How did it impact you when the games were postponed? And how did you have to rearrange and restructure your training? I think I dealt with the situation quite well. I was expecting the postponement, sort of those couple of weeks leading up. We were training, but not really sure what was happening. You know, the the IOC saying the games are going ahead, but the whole world's in lockdown. How is this going Mm. to work? So just, I guess, getting prepared for that announcement helped me digest it a little bit more. So it wasn't such a big shock when it was announced. And I guess having that perspective that so much was going on in the world really, you know, Mm. made you realise that, okay, postponing it's not a big deal. I Mm. can wait an extra year. I can get better in a year. Like I can just do what I can with what I've got at the moment. So... It made us rearrange um, some of our training, our planning. Um, I'm lucky that I think in our sport, the sports science sports science is important, but it's not a fine science where you've got to get it right to taper at the right time to right. get that you know best performance mm. out of your body. Like it is important, but it's so highly technical in our sport that mm. we've got that margin. Um, so in terms of, you know, the strength and conditioning, it didn't throw everything out. Mm. It, it sort of was just, okay, let's rearrange this, the program a little bit and, and keep working towards 2021. So I didn't do as many races as I normally would, mm. um, but I was lucky I still got to go overseas and train in a different environment, which was really important for me to sort of keep that Why is that important? Because you did go over to France. And I remember when I saw you going over to France in July, I was like, what are you? Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one's traveling overseas. Yeah. Like everyone's afraid to go over to Europe, but felt like you were just heading into like a hot spot. Yeah, it it was a risk to take, but at the same time for me to have stayed in Australia for the whole year was also a risk mm-hmm. that I would, you know, become a bit stale or lose a mm. bit of motivation. Uh, I'm so used to travel and, and so used to training in different places and with different people and that variety is something that really stimulates me to mm. keep improving and I really needed that. So when I had the opportunity to go and I was able to get a travel exemption and base myself in the Czech Republic for about a month, that was the best opportunity for me because it wasn't, Czech Republic wasn't a hotspot at that Mm. point. It was one of the best places to train. There were a lot of different athletes training there. So I was able to maximize that and Mm -hmm. it made a huge difference to be able to get over there and, and yeah, keep that variety and and that adaptability Mm -hmm. happening. So I then went to France and based myself in France and 
I mean, yes, there were a lot of COVID cases over there, but I pretty much was going apartment, Mm -hmm. training and home. There wasn't, you know, socialising. There wasn't a lot of shopping and that sort of thing or or Mm. sightseeing. It was very much just stick to training and and resting and Mm. that that was about it. I did a few hikes in the mountains, but just really being very cautious and very safe. And now heading into Tokyo 2021, What's the biggest difference to Jess now than she was in Rio and in London? I'd like to think I'm a better athlete. <laughs> I've I've definitely improved over the last four years physically and mentally, technically. I guess the difference is that I'm more confident, I'm more mature and I know who I am and I know how to race and I still love what I do. So that's probably the only mm. thing that stayed the same is I'm still the same person and I still love training and racing and I'm really excited about the opportunity of racing in both events, the canoe and the kayak. Mm. So Tokyo will be the first time to be able to race the canoe event and I I can't believe I'll be one of the first women to race in that in history. So I'm very excited about that. Very cool. Well, we finish off every podcast by asking our guests to tell us if they could go back in time and talk to the little girl that was the athlete. Jess Fox, what would you go and tell your 10-year-old self? I think I'd tell my 10-year-old self to keep that fun, keep that playfulness and keep learning and being inspired by everyone and anyone. I think, you know, we can all learn from everyone and different sports and different fields. As a 10-year-old, I think I was probably, you know, I was a tomboy and very sporty and around that age and a couple of years later, your body starts to change. And I do remember being so self-conscious and battling with that body image. So I'd probably say to myself as well, going into those years mm. where women, where girls are quite vulnerable and some girls drop out of, of, out of sport at that age because of these sort of body image issues, I would say just love your body for mm. what it can do. And it's going to take you amazing places. So love your body <laughs> and be proud of your muscles. Be proud of um, what you can do. Were you always proud of your muscles or you went through a stage where yeah, that no, was Yeah, definitely went through a stage. About? Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, not wanting to do gym because I didn't want to get bulky. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, as a, as a 12-year-old turning up to high school and having muscles and abs and then you know, I went through a bit of a, a puppy fat stage through puberty and then felt like I wasn't fit enough. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of women battle mm. with body image issues. And then at the end of the day, we're all different. Our body changes all the time, but let's celebrate it for what it can do and, you know, the things that it allows us to do, mm. the places it takes us. Well, we can't wait to see you in Tokyo 2021. Thank you so much for coming here and sharing your story with On Her Game. Thanks for the chat, Sam. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app, or search On Her Game podcast.